Those flying monkeys are just freaking me out. That witch, just, I've never watched it. I don't think I've watched it with our kids now. I've no, I don't think I've ever watched it since childhood. Like, why would you watch that ever? The newer versions are better, but the old one was just terrible. And, um, but you know the basic premise of the story. Dorothy ends up away from Kansas. She's not at home. She's in this land called Oz. She has to follow the Yellow Brick Road to find her way home. She picks up these companions who are all flawed in some way, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, the Lion, to uh, make their way to see this wizard who supposedly has all this power to fix all of their problems and send Dorothy back home, only to find out there's not a real person in the sense this great powerful wizard. He's just this little man behind a curtain with technology and creates this persona that's not real um, to have control over this whole land and all these people. And, um, of course, the movie resolves itself, but this is the essence of the situation that Jesus finds himself in in Mark chapter 12. Jesus has come into the domain of the Jewish religious leaders, and they are now attempting to pull back the curtain and expose him as a fraud. He's not really who he says he is or think he is. He's just this normal guy who has power, yes, but he's not the Messiah, certainly not someone we're going to bow down to. He came into the temple in chapter 11 of Mark. He cleansed it of their crooked system of religious offerings that they profited from and declared his way as the new way. This will be a house of prayer. He tells a parable in the beginning of chapter 12 of Mark that essentially is pointing his finger at the religious leaders saying, all these evil people who have killed God's servants for all these years, y'all are just like them. Y'all are part of that group. Now you're about to kill the son. And that's leading its way up to that. Last week, Kendrick walked us through the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Herodians. They were going to give him this question that would hopefully either make him get in trouble with Rome because he would say, don't pay taxes, or he would lose the affection of the people because of his allegiance to Rome to pay taxes. And Jesus, as only Jesus can, wisely, skillfully nuances his way through their question, creating this idea of how to live in a world as a, kingdom, a citizen of another kingdom, but still submit ourselves to the kingdoms of this world, knowing that ultimately God's kingdom will reign and rule forever. This week, we have attempt number two. Not the Pharisees and Herodians who are trying to unmask Jesus, but now the Sadducees. So, beginning in Mark 12, verse 18. Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Father, we are grateful for your word. We thank you that your word changes us. It gives us salvation. It gives us life. It convicts. It cuts. It heals. And so by your word and by your spirit, Father, we we confess our complete dependence on you to do whatever you need to do in us. We confess our Lack of ability to change people's lives. It's only you that can do that. So come, Holy Spirit, and speak. 
convict and challenge and encourage. Bring life where there is death. Bring hope where there is hopelessness. Bring joy where there is shame. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. First of all, who are the Sadducees? We've not really seen them very much throughout the Gospel of Mark, but they were an incredibly prominent group of first century Jewish religious leaders. They made up a majority of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, a group of 70 Jewish men who basically ruled over the Jewish religious life under the authority of Rome. Sanhedrin was made up of Sadducees, Pharisees, and scribes, but most of them were Sadducees. These men would eventually, the Sanhedrin would eventually sentence Jesus to death for blasphemy and hand him over to the Romans to be crucified. And you would see throughout the early history of the church, throughout the book of Acts, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, continue to persecute and cause problems for the followers of Jesus. The Sadducees came into existence about 200 years earlier. They were aristocratic. They were wealthy. They would inherit the priesthood. They were powerful. They had a cozy relationship with the Greeks first and now the Romans that they enjoyed. Contrasted with the Pharisees, who were more like the everyday man, middle to lower class, fixated on knowing the entire Old Testament, plus their interpretations and traditions, following the Old Testament to the letter of the law, those are the Pharisees. The Sadducees were much less concerned with all of that. They, in fact, they only held the Torah, the Pentateuch, the, as the authoritative, the first five books of the Old Testament as the authoritative books. They dismissed the rest of it. They were in some ways the opposite of the Pharisees. Tim Keller put it like this, if the Pharisees were morally conservative, the Sadducees were humanistic liberals. The Pharisees were religious and legalistic, while the Sadducees were more about maintaining their power and their beneficial relationship with Rome and their, their power over the people. For the Sadducees, everything was centered in the temple rituals and the profiting that they would benefit from the temple money changing and selling of animals. So when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the Sadducees were non-existent. They were gone. The other major difference, as pointed out in this story by Mark in verse 18, is the Sadducees believed that when the body died, so did the soul. So there would be no resurrection. You would cease to exist. Everything was just dead. Where the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. In fact, later in the book of Acts, Luke put it like this, Acts 23.8, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So the question is, why did these Jewish religious leaders who have the same access to the same scriptures as the Pharisees reject the resurrection, the Pharisees didn't? Well, part of the reason they rejected the resurrection is because from their perspective, it was not explicitly taught in the portion of the Old Testament that they deemed authoritative, the first five books. In fact, the resurrection from the dead is not explicitly taught in the Old Testament at all. It's, it's not 100% clear. It's alluded to, it's kind of hinted at, but it's not really very clear. You have passages like Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Or you have Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There's like three other passages like that in the Old Testament, and then that's it. So the Pharisees took those small sampling of scriptures, 
along with stories like Enoch and Elijah, two men who alive were taken into heaven. They, didn't, they did not die, and they kind of formulated their understanding of the re- resurrection so that by the time of Jesus, they fully embraced the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees did not. Now, Jesus would come along and teach more about that, and the early church would teach more about that, so we have a clearer picture of what this is going to be like. But they at least believed the Pharisees in the resurrection from the dead, the Sadducees not. The basic idea in the Old Testament about life after death was centered in this term Sheol. You see it throughout the Old Testament. It's this just bleak place where dead people go. Like Jesus saying to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Nothing like that in the Old Testament. Nobody says anything like that or has any understanding about that in the Old Testament. Knowing this about the Sadducees, what then is the intent behind their strange question? Now, we know they don't really care that Jesus solved this dilemma. Because Mark tells us in verse 18, they say there's no resurrection. So they don't really think this is going to be a problem. So what are they trying to get at? Their basic intent is to expose Jesus and his relationship with the Pharisees. They think he's one of them. So they want to expose that and expose him as absurd and as ridiculous as they think the resurrection is. Or maybe Jesus would come out and say, you know, I don't believe in the resurrection either. And he's more in their corner. Is Jesus with the Pharisees in this ridiculous, absurd belief in the resurrection? Or is he against the Pharisees and in our corner? Now they intend to bring this out by asking Jesus this seemingly absurd question that they no doubt have used time and again with the Pharisees. Like they thought it up, concocted it. Hey, get these guys to answer this question. And it was based in this Old Testament law called the Levirate Law, found in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name shall not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house, and the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. It's probably a shorter word for that. But But that's the basic idea. It was a a, a law that was intended to show kindness and mercy to a man who dies with no children, so that his name would not be blotted out. There would be uh, an inheritance for, for his name, for his line of his family. This was the reason, this law is the reason Ruth ended up getting married to Boaz, if you're familiar with that story. Now, in this hypothetical situation, somehow this woman ends up marrying all seven brothers. None of them have children, and eventually they're all dead. And the question should be, like, who in the world would still marry this woman? Like, brother number four should have been, this is kind of sketchy. Everybody keeps dying who you marry. I'm out. I'll just be the guy with the house with the sandal pulled off, Right? <laughs> But the real question that they had is, in the resurrection, who will she be married to? Now, the basis for this question is what the Pharisees believed about the resurrection. They essentially saw it as this life 
continued yet more glorious. And so whoever you're married to now, that's who you're going to be married to in the resurrection, the eternal state. It's just going to be better. So they believed in monogamy now, so obviously there's going to be monogamy then. So this woman can't be married to all seven brothers in the eternal state. She can only be married to one, so which one is it? Who has the right since they had no kids? And if the Pharisees' view of the resurrection were correct, this would be a difficult question to answer. As far as the Sadducees were concerned, they have Jesus trapped. And they probably like, were giddy because this has trapped so many Pharisees. And they can never answer this question. We got them every time. Either Jesus dismisses the resurrection or he tries and stays with it and somehow argues for some technicality, like she should be the wife of the first husband, thus proving himself to be ridiculous and embarrassing himself. Of course, Jesus cannot be predicted. He has a path forward that no one can see, and so he responds with basically a couple of quick jabs to the mouth and then just delivers two knockout punches to the Sadducees. Just finishes them off, beginning in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. They are wrong for two reasons. They don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. And both of those are elaborated in the verses that follow. But, But notice as we walk through these two things, when Jesus says they are wrong, he is implying he is right. Jesus will explicitly shut down their false belief, but in shutting down their false belief, he implies some amazing truths for us who are followers of Jesus. Promises and hopes that are rooted in the scriptures and the powers of God that rebuke the Sadducees, but encourage followers of Christ. So first we see the power of God, the power of God and what Jesus reveals to us about heaven In verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus is not going to argue a technicality. He's going to do something that only God can do. He's going to introduce a new truth. Now, this is a prerogative of God alone. Like if we come up here one Sunday and say, hey, new revelation from God, here goes. Immediately come and remove us. Drag us out of the doors, into the grass, and lock the door. Don't let us back in until you have time to counsel us and walk us through what in the world is wrong with us. Like, we don't ever introduce new truths. I don't care what angel appears to you, what voice you hear from heaven, what gold tablets show up in your cereal boxes. We never introduce new truth. God has spoken. We proclaim what he has said. Now, there's new, fresh ways to apply it to our life. But anytime you say, Jesus told me, Jesus spoke to me, Jesus has been calling me and saying things to me, then you bring that before the community of God, you bring that before the Scriptures, and you evaluate it, you test it. Could God have really said this? You submit yourself to the Scriptures, submit yourself to the community that God has put you in, 
And you evaluate if this is something Jesus could actually lead you to do or Jesus could actually say to you. And if it's not clear or if it's obviously false, you abandon it. I don't, it doesn't matter how amazing it is or how awesome it is. We only reveal and speak what God has said, which is not new revelation. The, the canon has been closed. This is it. And it's more than enough more than sufficient for anything that we need that we will face in this life. But Jesus, because he is God, he can do this. This new truth about what, what it's going to be like in heaven, never been, before we've been revealed until right now. And so he's basically saying your false scenario is not going to be a problem because nobody's going to be married in heaven. We're going to be like the angels in that way. Angels don't die, and therefore they have no need of procreation, therefore they have no need of marriage and sex. They did not see this coming. Frankly, we would not have seen this coming. Like if Paul would have revealed this over in Corinthians, one of those passages where he says, this is not the Lord talking, this is me talking, I don't think we're going to be married in heaven, we'd all be like, what? Maybe Paul didn't know what he's talking about. Only because this comes from the lips of Jesus do we know for sure, okay, this is, this is interesting. This is a new truth, a new reality. Now Jesus gives us a small glimpse of what life is going to be like in the eternal state. We don't know much. Paul saw the most about the third heaven, and he couldn't speak about it. In fact, God sent him a messenger of Satan to keep him humble about it in 2 Corinthians 12. We get some ideas in Revelation, but we're still nowhere close to 100% sure of where we're headed to. We know some things for certain, and there's passages for all of this in case you're interested. Jesus is preparing this place for us right now. It's described as a glorious city. It's only for those who have been born again of God. They have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We won't need the sun because God's glory will light it up. It's beautiful. It's perfect. There's total unity and harmony. It has no night or shadow, no evil, and will last forever. And we know that we're going to get these resurrected bodies that are going to be much like what Jesus had when he rose from the dead. We know these bodies will retain our unique personhood. So I will still be Jared in heaven. You will still be whoever you are. Um, I don't know if we'll have that name, but, but still be the same person. You'll be recognizable. We won't be limited by space. We won't have pain. We won't die. We won't sin. And we'll be glorious. And so if we're in this glorious existence with glorified bodies that allow us to know each other, why won't we be married? We well, have to think back to some of the original intentions that God had in instituting marriage. Where he says to Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. After Adam has named all of the animals and there is no helper suitable for him, he says it's not good for man to be alone. So Adam, take a nap. When you wake up, I have a surprise for you. A woman. She is a helper suitable for you. Both created in the image of God. Both equal in the eyes of God. Now you have a companion. Go and be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Go have kids. Procreation. The essence of marriage from the beginning was companionship and procreation. Fill the earth. Display the image of God throughout all of creation as you rule over creation with me. Now later on we learn more that marriage is also a demonstration of the gospel, the relationship between Christ and the church. But the original intent is this idea of companionship and procreation. In heaven, we won't die, so we don't need to procreate to, to carry on our, our family. And we're going to have perfect unity in the body of Christ with no sin. And so our deep need of companionship won't primarily be met in one person, a spouse, but will be met in the unhindered fellowship with God and His people. 
Like, I know what some of you are thinking. Really? So I'm going to know my wife in heaven, but I'm not going to be married to her. I'm not going to be having sex with her. That's all going to be satisfied by all of you. And that's supposed to be heaven. <laughs> right. So let's deal with that. First, let's not make less of marriage. All right? We don't want to swing the pendulum too far where we say, well, that's what it's going to be like in heaven, so it doesn't really matter what, how, how faithful we are to each other now. Sex really isn't that important in our marriage. It doesn't matter if we really do it because we're not going to be doing it in heaven, and, and, and we can have friends who are just as close to, to, to me as, as I am to you. Like, don't swing the pendulum that far. Marriage really matters. Don't make less of marriage. It's an incredible gift of God's grace to become one flesh with this other person. It's part of God's creation before the fall and sin. It's a demonstration of the gospel in a way a husband and wife love and serve each other as Christ and the church love and serve each other. God gives either a person the gift of singleness or he gives them the gift of a spouse. And the gift of a spouse is, is an amazing gift. He uses your spouse to provide companionship, intimacy, closeness, sanctification, possibly children, which provide more sanctification. Transformative things happen in you. Marriage is intended to be healthy, vibrant, passionate, fun, hard, and you actually get to a place in your marriage where you are loved by a person and you love a person. You are known by a person and you know a person in depths and ways that you never thought were possible, that you never imagined on that day that you said, I do. Jennifer and I said, I do, 18 years ago this weekend, officially tomorrow, but it was a Saturday. And you really just, you don't really know what you're getting into when you do that. You can't explain it to young couples who are engaged or falling in love or even just newly married. Like, there's no way, it's like, I can't download this information to your brain. It's just amazing how you become close, connected, intimate with this other person. I'm not actually a huge fan of weddings or even premarital counseling. If I never did another wedding or any more premarital counseling the rest of my life, I'd be fine with that. I'll do it, but I don't have to do it. Premarital counseling is difficult because it's like giving people safety instructions before they start the roller coaster. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. doesn't really matter what you say. They just want to ride. So they're not really listening. They may look like they're listening. They may act like they're listening, but they're not listening. So you're just like, just listen, and we'll come back later after you're in this, and we'll, we'll clean the mess up. Weddings uh, are good. We should celebrate the gift of holy marriage, but it's just a bunch of hoopla that doesn't mean jack squat to what your marriage becomes, right? It doesn't have any bearing on how healthy, vibrant, passionate your marriage is. You tell this to young couples, don't make too big of a deal of the day. And they're like, are you kidding me? You know how many followers I have on Instagram? I need pictures. I need likes. We fall in love with this idea of this, this Cinderella-type setting, and everybody does it. And we did it, even though Jennifer says her dad offered his money to elope. I don't remember that. I don't think she told me that. <laughs> but we probably wouldn't have taken it, because you've got to have your wedding day. And that's good. Like, we should celebrate that. That's fine. Just don't go crazy with it. I I know you're thinking, this guy is such a romantic. 
We, we make such a big deal of this one day, and there's so much more, and it's so much better as you begin to tick off the years, and you are growing in intimacy and love and devotion to each other, and you are working through pains and struggles and hurts. God is bringing you through trials that you never imagined you'd walk through. And God is blessing you with blessings that you never imagined that you would be blessed with. And Jesus is changing you. And marriage is wonderful for those whom God gives the gift of marriage to. And we could say much more about that, but at least get that. But marriage, as great as it is, is not the ultimate. And so while some dismiss marriage as not important... Two people of any gender nowadays, two people can just be in this relationship. It really doesn't matter if you get married because you love each other. The church says, no, that's not true. What God intends for us to enjoy in marriage cannot be born under the weight of any other relationship except marriage. Song of Solomon, that kind of passionate intensity, there's no other relationship but marriage that can bear the weight of the Song of Solomon. Part of our culture also makes marriage the ultimate. We're going to be married forever. We're going to love each other forever. You're my soulmate. You complete me. And Jesus here gives us insight into the temporary nature of marriage. It ends in death. Or when the eternal state is established when Jesus returns. What we have is a relationship with a fellow believer and all fellow believers in God himself that is more thrilling, more satisfying, more joy-inducing, more passionate than the best marriage on the best day or the best sex and the best marriage on the best day. That's what God offers us in the community of believers for all of eternity with himself and each other. Jonathan Edwards put it like this. In heaven, the glorified spiritual bodies of the saint shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind that such refined bodies are capable of. The sweetness and pleasure that shall be in the mind shall put the spirits of the body into such emotion as shall cause a sweet sensation throughout the body, infinitely excelling any sensual pleasure here. In other words, there is something waiting for us in heaven that is better than marriage and better than sex that has nothing to do with chocolate desserts or cocktails. It's this intimacy with God and his people that surpasses anything we experience in this life. Anything. It's beyond our imagination. This is part of the reason Paul came back and was speechless. Like, I don't know what to say about what I just saw when he went to the third heaven. Like, enjoy your marriage now. Let it burn with this white-hot passion, Song of Solomon passion, like it should. Let it thrive. Let it be healthy. Let it be amazing. Pursue that as long as you are physically able. But know that on your best day as a married couple, that doesn't compare to what's coming. There's a love between us and Jesus and our brothers and sisters in Christ, a love that will be more long-lasting, more free from sin, a love that is more intense, more satisfying, more thrilling than anything we can possibly experience in this life. We won't have any more weddings in the eternal state because every believer will already have a spouse. No more single people. No more widows. No more divorced people. Because He is our bridegroom. And we are his bride forever. 
And the satisfaction and joy of that eternal union will replace and exceed the best of what we have now. St. Teresa of Avila said it like this, the first moment in the arms of Jesus are going to make a thousand years of misery on earth look like one night in a bad hotel. It's going to be that good. Just can't imagine. We don't know much about the eternal state. We have more questions than answers, but we do know there will be no complaint box in heaven. We will be fully satisfied, fully enjoying everything God provides with no want, no lack, no need. Can you believe that? Can you see that? Can you begin to feel that that is going to be better than the best of what we have now? If you can't, then you also do not know the power of God. Just like the Sadducees. Like who created you? Who wired you? Who knows every cell in your body, every fiber of your being, and knows you and how you're best wired for satisfaction and joy more than you can ever imagine? Yet we live for the thrill of pornographic images, the thrill of video games, the thrill of food, the the thrill of the newest show, newest movie, newest album, newest whatever. We think those things are ultimate deep joy inducers, and we are, like C.S. Lewis, far too easily easily pleased. Content with mud mud pies in the slum, and God's offering us a vacation at sea. Wait until you see what is coming. And until that day, make sure your joy is rooted in Christ, flowing from Christ. So the temporary joys that we have, like marriage, they don't bear the weight of our ultimate desires for joy, but they point us to Christ, who alone can give us that joy, can alone satisfy the deepest longings of our heart and soul. See the eternality of the body of Christ. See that these relationships you have with each other as brothers and sisters actually supersede the biological family. As amazing as the biological family unit is, Jesus has come to give us a greater family, the family of God, adopted sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. And when you think about the fact that that we're going to be hanging out forever, that doesn't lessen our relationship. I don't really have to spend time with you because we're going to be hanging out forever. I don't have to work out this problem between us because one day it's going to get resolved. No, no, no. It actually deepens it. Because we're more committed to each other because we're going to be together forever. We're bound together by a shared body and blood of Christ in ways that simple DNA or last names or biology and marriage can't even do. This thing called the church is not just another organization that requires your time, energy, and resources. This is family. Eternally, forever, family. Sent together on mission to serve and be used by God to bring as many people as possible into this family to enjoy this forever fellowship. Only the power of God, the same power that called everything into existence from nothing, could do this. Only His power can change your life today if you would repent and trust in Jesus. The Sadducees didn't and wouldn't, but you can. And they also didn't know the scriptures, Jesus says. And the evidence for that is found in verse 26 and 27. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Jacob, I mean, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, this is just Jesus being Jesus. Bold, unashamed, getting in their grill, shutting them down. Like Mark doesn't record this, but in Matthew 22, the account of this story, it says the people were amazed at his teaching. In Luke 20, the account of the story, it says they didn't ask him any more questions. We're done here. White flag. These guys were so powerful and respected, nobody did this to them. They came to embarrass and expose Jesus, and they walked away embarrassed and exposed. And you see the tension building this last week of his life that leads to his death. This is why they wanted to kill him. And so the question is, well, why is this response so bold? Well, notice what Jesus does. He didn't argue for the resurrection on logic or reason. He didn't go to any of the Old Testament, Old Testament passages we looked at earlier that give the, the, the clearest picture of the resurrection in the Old Testament. He didn't mention Enoch or Elijah. Jesus goes to the only portion of the Old Testament that they deem as authoritative. The Pentateuch, the first five books. He shows them evidence for the resurrection and tells them twice, you are wrong, you don't know the scriptures. Like, he could not have been more confrontational and offensive. Like, if I walked up to LeBron and said, LeBron, you don't really know anything about basketball. Let me tell you about basketball. And you're thinking, well, that's ridiculous. But I would actually be right. What? That's as shocking as it is. Jesus getting in their grill and telling these men, the experts on the scriptures, they don't know the scriptures. And Jesus hasn't been to any of their schools. What does Jesus show them? Well, he refers to the burning bush event in the life of Moses when God appeared to Moses in a bush that was burning but not being consumed, preparing to send him to Egypt to lead his people out of slavery. And in the process of God calling Moses, God reveals to Moses who he is by calling himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Literally in Exodus 3, 6 it says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hit his face where he's afraid to look at God. Now, these guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have been dead for more than 400 years. But God does not say, I was the God of them when they were alive. He says, I am the God of them currently. I meet a lot of people in the various jobs and responsibilities I have, and, and almost every week I'll have a conversation with someone who we get to talking about who knows who, and it'll trace back to one of the churches I used to pastor. And when I refer back to that person that they know that we share in common, I'll say something like, I was their pastor back when I pastored that church. I've never said, I am their pastor, because I'm not their pastor. If I'm talking about you guys, I would say, yes, I, I am one of their pastors. Because currently I am. I would not speak about you in the past tense. But I have to speak about former jobs in the past tense because I'm no longer in that role. God is not speaking in the past tense because it's not in the past. It's a present tense relationship because these guys are not dead but alive. And their relationship continues with God. Death has not severed God's relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When he's talking to Moses 400 years later. And that's what we hate so much about death. The separation. The cutting off. The saying goodbye. Like even when we're, we're full of faith and we know this person knows Jesus, loves Jesus, they're with Jesus. We're, we're glad they're no longer suffering. Our heart still aches because we are cut off from them. And, and we would do anything we could to stop that from happening. But we're powerless. 
We will not invent medicine. We will not create technology that will keep us from dying. That even will reverse the effects of aging. We are all going to die or Jesus will return. One or the other will happen. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how rich you are, how athletic you are. You can just drink and eat raw vegetables until the, until the day you die and you're still going to die. We're powerless to stop death. Now, if we in our love for people in our life have this strong desire for death not to interrupt this relationship, how much more do you think God desires the same? God who is the definition of love. God who everything he does is flavored by love. And not only does he desire for that relationship to continue, unlike us, he has the power to keep it going. He's not powerless over death. If God were powerless to stop death, he would not be God. Death would be God. But God is God and death is not. And so the relationship that God begins with us does not end with death because of the resurrection. When this body stops, we continue to live in our soul and spirit. And one day there will be a great resurrection, a great reunion with our glorified resurrected bodies and our souls. And we will live in this glorified state forever. This has not happened yet. Like we say things at funerals, like, you know, grandma's up there in her new body dancing around with Jesus. And, and I know what we mean. That's great. It's, it's good to think about that. But technically, it hasn't happened yet. For now, believers are in paradise. The, Jesus told the thief on the cross today would be in the paradise, the bosom of Abraham, Luke chapter 16, existing only in soul and spirit until this great resurrection comes. You read about it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 57. I think I read this at every funeral that I do. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Mystery, something that was previously unknown, is now being revealed. We shall all not, shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed." For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is essentially saying there is a day coming when in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, there's going to be instant transformation. Those who are dead will rise first. We who are still alive will be caught up to meet him in the air and will instantly be changed and receive our glorified bodies because these bodies, the perishable, the mortal, cannot, are not built for heaven. They cannot exist in heaven. And you, you don't have to live very long to know that. The longer you live, the more you realize this thing's not going to make it much longer. Every year, more stuff hurts. More stuff can't be fixed, it feels like. Right? So we have to get a new body that is built for eternity, that's built for the imperishable, the immortality. And when that day comes, that's the resurrection, instantly changed into the, this glorified body to be with God and his people forever. If there was no resurrection, if death was final, if the promises and relationships with God ended in death, what would we possibly have? Despair. Hopelessness. Darkness, like nothing would matter. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Because when we die, it's over. 
Go live it up. Nothing lasts forever. Death would, in fact, be the ultimate authority and our reason and motivation to live would cease to exist. There's not many people still arguing for this reality. Most people in our culture believe there's something after life. There has to be. Because the despair would be so great if there wasn't, we would have no purpose and meaning to our life. But God is not a God of the dead. He is a God of the living. So death is not the end. There will be a resurrection. Eternity does matter. Therefore, our lives beyond this life matter. In fact, you see this at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. The entire chapter is written to to talk about the resurrection. Paul begins 1 Corinthians 15 declaring the resurrection. Like, here's all the people who actually saw Jesus raised from the dead. And then he goes on to say, if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead... We would not be raised from the dead. And if Jesus had been raised from the dead, therefore our lives would be pathetic, pointless. We would, of all people, be most to be pitied. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, we would not be raised from the dead. Let's go to the house. This is pointless. That's how important the resurrection is. And he goes through the rest of the chapter declaring, defending the resurrection. And you get to this last verse, verse 58. Therefore, the implications of the resurrection. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because the resurrection is real, because Jesus was raised from the dead, we will be raised. So everything in this life matters. Give your life away for the work of the Lord because everything you do matters and your labors will never be in vain. Let's get after it, church. Because Jesus has been raised, we will be raised. Let's quit wasting our lives with frivolous pursuit of temporary pleasure. Let's live for eternity. Let's pursue people who don't know God, who don't know the hope that we have, that we've been graciously given. Let's give our lives away in our city and in the nations to make Him known so as many people as possible can know Christ in His life. It will be hard. It will require much sacrifice and sweat and tears. It will cause us to risk rejection and the loss of relationships We will be peculiar, and we will not always be liked. In fact, if we are liked by everyone, we're doing something wrong. And we may even lose our lives, but guess what? Death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Death is not the thing to be most afraid of. You may have saw the news yesterday. There was a 5K run, Memorial Day uh, near Chenault Aviation Museum, and there's a guy, 74 years old, who halfway through the race collapsed and, and died. And you're thinking, 74? Like, what are you doing? Go to the couch. You've done enough. Rest. Quit running 5K races in the heat and humidity of Louisiana. I don't know the guy. I don't know anything about him, but I know this. He knew that there are things far worse than death because he's out running a 5K race at 74 years old. And that's just running races. We are called, created, and sent to bring the good news to people far from God, lost. And in some amazing, mysterious way, God uses us to affect the eternal destinies of other people. 
through our proclamation of the gospel to our family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, unreached people groups in Europe and Asia this summer, kids coming to Secret Springs in Okaloosa, Student Life Camp in Orange Beach, people at Jack Hayes in the Oaks, through us showing the love of Christ and sharing the gospel, people come alive in Christ and their eternities are changed forever and we're worried about rejection. We're worried it will interrupt our schedules. We're worried about what it may cost us It will be emotionally difficult. We don't even have to fear death. Death is nothing to be feared. Why are we afraid of anything else? Let's get after it, church. Let's be abounding in the work of the Lord because Jesus was raised. We'll be raised so everything will matter and nothing will be in vain. He'll use it all. Our successes, our failures. He'll use it all. Nothing will be in vain. The Sadducees missed this because they did not know the scriptures of the power of God. Jesus is the word of God and power of God. They missed it because they missed Jesus. We don't have to miss it if we would embrace Jesus. And when we do, we come alive in him. We get his life, life forever. And eternal life begins now. The moment you come alive in Christ. Jesus said in John 17, 3, what is eternal life? To know God and his son, Jesus Christ. Which means our lives now count for eternity. Every conversation, every interaction, every person God has sovereignly ordained that we would be around, all those relationships matter for eternity. We're either helping someone come into the family or we are encouraging a brother or sister in Christ. It's one of those two things. Every single relationship And all this is possible because of what Jesus was about to do a few days after this confrontation. Give his life for us. Die for our sins and rise from the dead so we can be saved and redeemed and resurrected forever. Is that the condition of your soul this morning? Have you, are you trusting in Jesus for his life, your forgiveness, and your salvation? Father, we're so grateful for your word, for how it speaks how it affects change in us far more than what any man could do or any church could do or any denomination. The Spirit of God changes the world. I thank you for how you've changed lives in this room and pray that you would continue to do so as we repent and trust in Jesus continually on and on. And Father, I pray for anyone who may be here who, have, who has never come alive in Christ, they've never trusted Jesus They don't have the life of Christ flowing through them. I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. That as we sing, as we pray, as we spend the rest of this time together, they would see their sins, they would call out to Jesus for salvation and come alive in him. Make this happen for your glory, by your spirit and in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.